Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. All right, FDA has been very active recently on a number of different guidance documents. And one of the recent guidances that came out in February of 2019 is this guidance called Non-Binding Feedback After Certain FDA Inspections of Device Establishments. It's kind of a mouthful and kind of important to understand what this means and how this relates to 483 observations and warning letters and things of that nature. And Mike Drew's from Vascular Sciences and I explore this topic on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. In recent weeks, there's been a couple of guidance documents that you may or may not have paid a lot of attention to that came from FDA. One of them we're going to dive into a little bit today, and this has to do with non-binding feedback after uh, FDA inspections. And to analyze the the scope and why this guidance may or may not matter uh, to you is a good friend and and familiar voice on the Global Medical Device Podcast, Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences. Mike, welcome. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to share the stage with you. All right. So... You know, I know you and I, when these new guidances come out, we're always reading them, trying to figure out, okay, what's this all about? Why does it matter? And I think that the timing of this this uh, conversation with you is important, uh, specifically for this non-binding feedback guidance that came out. But in your opinion, what led to this new guidance? And I guess the part two of that question is, do you think we really need this? Well, it's a great place to start, John. So just to remind your audience, and we can post a link to the guidance on the webpage, the title of the guidance is Non-Binding Feedback After Certain FDA Inspections of Device Establishments. It came out just a few weeks ago. And quite frankly, the events leading up to this are very simple. As many in your audience probably know from firsthand experience, the FDA, specifically CDRH, has significantly increased the number of annual uh, site inspections that they're doing both here in the U.S. as well as uh, internationally. Here are some statistics for you, John, and this was kind of a surprise to myself as well. Over the last decade, over the last 10 years, the number of foreign inspections has increased nearly 250%. And over the same period of time, over the last 10 years, the number of U.S. inspections has increased by about 50%. And so one of the things leading up to this is that there's more inspections. But the other thing is that, um, and again, I suspect some in the audience have firsthand experience of this, maybe much to their chagrin. CDRH is taking a much more aggressive approach to these inspections and issuing more warning letters and in some cases even 483s based on them. So I think that's quite frankly the reason why FDA put out this, this particular guidance now. All right. Well, that's that's a little bit insightful. I guess the other thing that kind of uh, raises an eyebrow for me. I mean, two hundred, nearly two hundred fifty percent increase in, in a, about a ten year span for foreign, and, and you said about fifty percent for U.S. inspections, right? Correct. So, why is FDA doing so many more inspections? Well, it's a great question, John, and clearly there are a lot of reasons. But I, you know, to be 
to make it simple and to be pl- uh, quite blunt, the simple reality is, and, it, and I take no pleasure in saying this, but there are some companies, some medical device companies and the people in them that have done and continue to do stupid things. And when companies do stupid things, oftentimes that leads to bad press, that leads to recalls, that leads to, in some situations, people being harmed. And so, uh, you know, one could argue that the better that companies do their jobs in terms of what they should do from an engineering or biology perspective, the less aggressive that FDA would have to be. Some people in the audience might have a bit of a hard time with, uh, with that characterization, John, but, you know, as I've said many times, there's no better way to ensure that we have more regulation in the future than if people do stupid things. On the other hand, that street runs in two directions. There's no better way to ensure that we have less regulation in the future than if companies do the things that they really should do. Does that make sense, John? It does. And, you know, I'm just thinking back to uh, the past 12, 18 months or so. I mean, there's been documentaries, there's been patient advocacy groups, there's been you know, different websites popping up here and there that are seem to be constantly pointing out all the bad stuff for the med device industry. And, and, and I'm part of what I'm hearing is that I know you didn't, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but in some respects, well, it's speculation, I suppose, but in some respects, the increase in inspections could be partial knee jerk response based on, on all this negative press from the med, med device industry. I mean, is that a fair speculation? Do you think? Absolutely correct, John. It's an excellent point, and thanks for the reminder to not paint an overly broad brush here. Clearly, the vast majority of companies and the people in them are doing the right things. But unfortunately, you know, there are some that that don't, and it's kind of like if you have a barrel of 100 apples, it only takes one of them to make the, the entire batch sour. So. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, we all we all come across the rule or, you know, in our daily life, we may see a a sign posted somewhere and it says, you know, a certain rule. And at first, I mean, might scratch our heads. Why is that rule there? Oh, it's because probably somebody did that. And so now they made a rule for the rest of us, even though, you know, it was one out of a thousand people or whatever. But but rules are there for reasons. And it's not always because for those people who are following them, it's sometimes for those who maybe didn't follow them. That's sometimes how these things come to be. So what do you think the goal of this guidance, or I guess maybe we can go as far as to say program, what do you think the goal of this program is? So simply put, John, the goal of the program, and this is stated in the FDA's press release, which I happen to agree with, is to improve communications with medical device companies concerning corrective actions in response to inspectional observations. In other words, uh, getting uh, a Form 483 issued. This was actually required uh, of the FDA as part of the FDA Reauthorization Act of 2017. And this is, if any of your uh, in your audience want to read the guidance, John, this is a very short guidance. It's only yeah, about it's not so bad. pages in length. Yeah. Yeah. So that's simply put, that's the goal. And I think that's an admirable goal as we'll talk about whether it's realistic or not, you know, whether it's going to improve the status quo. We'll talk about that. I mean, it's, to borrow a term, a, a different FDA regulatory term, it uh, and I, I think some of the notes that you and I were sharing back and forth, it's almost like this is a pre-submission of sorts, but more with a, a 483 slant. I think that's a good way to characterize it, John, yes. All right. So since we're talking 483 and inspections, these terms may be a little bit new. And I know from folks that I talk to, sometimes there's confusion about a 483 and a warning letter and 
which ones do I need to respond to and which ones are like for my own edification and all that sort of thing. So it might be worth taking a moment to describe some of the difference between a, a 483, a warning letter, uh, and the types of responses that would be expected from me in those situations. It's a great question, John. Happy to do so. And I also know that you obviously do an awful lot of work in this area. So I would invite you to you know, either agree or disagree or add your own examples if you'd like. But simply put, a, four, a, a 483 in a warning letter is not the same. It's not synonymous. Although sometimes people use those terms synonymously. Regrettably, even I do use them synonymously, but they're not the same. A 43 is just simply, how would you describe it, John? Uh, something that FDA finds as yeah. part of an inspection that's not quite kosher, as opposed to a warning letter, which is uh, a serious violation may exist. So in other words, not all 43s generate warning letters. So I don't want to get into the back of the house operations of the FDA, but the 43 would be issued at or shortly thereafter uh, the inspection. But then as the information is digested, if this information, if the problem turns out to be a serious violation, then a warning letter can be issued. And in some cases, in extreme cases, if there are real problems, this is when the company might even be put under what's called a consent degree. And that has all kinds of legal ramifications, which we won't get into here. But that's sort of how I differentiate between the two, John. And one other thing I would add is just because a company gets a 43 doesn't necessarily mean they're doing something wrong. I'll give you a quick example. One of the companies that I'm working with now they got pinged via a 43 on a manufacturing inspection because, let me explain this as simple as I can, they came up with a better, a more efficient way to do something better than the industry standard. They were not following the industry standard. So upon inspection, the inspector said, okay, you're not following the industry standard. And the company said, yes, you are correct. Let us explain why. And they had all of the rationale. And the inspector said, well, thank you for that explanation. Uh, it certainly makes sense, but I need to issue a 43 anyway. It's like, you know, we've, we've created disincentives for companies to make improvements. And quite frankly, that's a problem, but that perhaps is a topic of a different discussion. Well, it may be a topic of a different discussion, but it might also actually dovetail quite nicely. I mean, uh, let me add a little bit of, of my context on a 43. So uh, folks, the number 43 comes from, it is the FDA form 483. It is just the form number. Uh, when you have an, an FDA inspection, you will receive a notice of inspection, which is on form 482, but anything that's captured on as a result of that inspection is, are known as inspectional observations, and those get documented on this form 483. But it might be apropos, actually, to this topic, Mike, because it's this opportunity for improvement. And I think, you know, if I am a recipient of a 483, to your point, not all of these things necessarily warrant a thorough CAP investigation. Some may, some may not. Not all of these things hopefully are going to, to, to result in any sort of warning letters. And there's no absolute about that. But this might be a good case where if I get a 483, this might be that opportunity for me to engage with agency on this non-binding feedback. This might be a good use case of this guidance document. Actually, you're right, John. And uh, when this particular situation that I just uh, described occurred, this was a couple of years ago, this was prior to this new guidance that we're talking about. So you're right. It could be a, a good use case for it. 
And by the way, John, one of the reasons why I think you and I make such a good team is because you're very good at the at the details, at the minutiae, at the forms. I'm more of a, I don't care what the form number is, it's the content that's important to me. Yeah, so, absolutely. So. But, you know, I just, uh, sometimes I think times uh, we, we hear, we rattle off these numbers and and, I, and maybe it has no importance at all, but, but I just want folks to understand <laughs> what the origin of the 483 number is all about. Because, I mean, you know, we're good at acronyms and numbers and codes and, and uh, regulatory speak. The other thing that uh, I thought it might be good to kind of explore a little bit is I think people have a different approach with respect to how they respond to 483s versus warning letters. A warning letter, if you get one, folks, this, this is serious news. This, this means that, that you know, there are some systemic compliance issues that the agency or at least feels that, that you have. Uh, so your response is mandatory. 43s, I, I've seen companies be a little laissez-faire about that. To me, a, a 43, if you get a 43 observation, I, this may not be the right way to describe it, but I kind of see it as kind of a shot over the, the bow. You know, it's, it's kind of a warning sign, not to confuse terminology here, but it's something that you should, you should perk up a little bit and pay a little bit of, of attention uh, to. This might be an opportunity for you to improve something within your, your business. This might be an opportunity for you to communicate with the agency why things are done a certain way. So I would take 43s seriously as well if, if it were me and my medical device company. I would be proactive in responding to the agency with that. I don't know if you have practices that you re- recommend that would be different or the same on that, Mike. Well, I agree 100%, John. And as a matter of fact, I take a step further. Anything that you get from the FDA, either formally or informally, should be taken seriously. What you do with that information and how exactly you respond, obviously that's a topic you know that, we, that is going to be situation-dependent. But anything that comes from the FDA should be taken seriously. And that's the purpose of this particular guidance, which starts to go into the process, which I think maybe is something that we should talk about. What's, what's the yeah, process? Yeah, sure. Sure. The guidance set up. So, in essence, the, the process that's described in the guidance, here's my synopsis of it. So, simply put, a company undergoes a manufacturing inspection. And by the way, this can either be either pre or post market. Most of your audience is probably not familiar with pre market inspections because right. those are typically limited to class three PMA devices. But the guidance does apply to both. So anyway, you have a manufacturing inspection. As a result of that inspection, you receive a 483. You then need to analyze that situation, understand what the observation was. And most importantly, you need to come up with a, uh, a response. In other words, a justification for why you should continue to do what you're doing or some sort of a corrective action or solution to the problem that they've identified. Once you come up with your response, then you submit that to the agency, not yet, not just your response, but you need to submit your analysis. With, and again, I don't, the FDA is not requiring you to do this, but this is my SOP. You submit your analysis. This is what we did to investigate the problem. Here is why we think it's not a problem, or here is why we think it is a problem, and this is what we propose to do about it, to, to correct it or to prevent it from happening in the future. And you do all of this prophylactically, kind of like a pre-sub, before you implement it. Uh, FDA then comes back to you with non-binding feedback, and we'll talk more about that in a moment, non-binding feedback on your proposed corrective action or solution. Uh, In other words, simply put, does FDA buy your solution? 
And hopefully, if they agree, then you know you implement your solution, and uh, all is well. And if they don't agree, then you continue to negotiate. So, at a high level, John, that I think describes the process. Does that make sense? It, it does, and I, I just want to chime in. So, before this guidance uh, came out at least in my experience, you know, you get those 43 observations, you know, and, and folks want to remind you all, I'm talking to Mike Drews of Vascular Sciences, uh, we're talking about this new guidance document that came from FDA on non-binding feedback after FDA inspections, uh, or certain FDA inspections. And uh, I want to remind folks listening that uh, Greenlight Guru, we all, we've done webinars on how to respond to 43. We have guidance documents and templates that we uh, that are readily available for free on our uh, website as well, including a template that, that can help you with how to respond to 43s. But Mike, in my experience, what happens, you get these 43s and then and, and you've got a finite period of time where you need to start to figure out how and, and what to respond. And, and a lot of companies will, you, you may trigger some uh, internal CAPA activities and things of that nature, but you're trying to identify you know, the, the immediate corrections, you're trying to identify what sort of root cause, you're trying to determine an action plan and you're communicating what you're doing to the agency. And historically, I, I think that that communication, oftentimes it feels like it's, it's, you're sending it to the agency, but it doesn't feel like, or you don't really always have confirmation that there's anybody on the other end reading it. But, <laughs> you know, but, I, but I, I always advise companies, you know, tell the agency you're gonna communicate with them monthly or every six weeks or some period of time and then do it, you know, just because you're trying to show that you're taking this seriously and you're taking the necessary action. So I'm kind of a fan of this, this guidance in that, you know, it, it has the potential to promote more of a, an interactive or a collaborative type of engagement so that rather than me as company just doing things based on what I think is best, I actually get some feedback, hopefully from the agency as to, to the actions that I'm proposing. Well, once again, John, I could not agree with you more. You know, another way to kind of ask, I think the question that you just described is, is the process described in this new guidance, is it really new? And the short answer is absolutely not. Uh, as you just correctly pointed out, we've always had the opportunity to discuss plans for responding to 483s. And it's an option that I always recommend, and I know you do as well. But previously, companies could ask for this feedback on their proposed corrective actions, but there was no standardized process, if you will, for FDA to provide that feedback. And so when we refer to this as a new program, I put the word new in sort of air quotes, all it, all it does is it simply formalizes what was already available to everybody and what you and I both have personally recommended probably many, many times over, to, over the years. And this is exactly why I draw the analogy to, analogy to a pre-sub. As a matter of fact, I go so far as to say um, we didn't need to create a new process. We didn't need to create a new guidance. All we needed to do was perhaps set up a new category of a pre-sub where a company could do exactly what we're describing here, a 483 pre-sub, if you will. Yeah. But FDA did it this way. So maybe we should talk a bit about what kind of information does FDA respond with, because that's another thing that I think is going to be important for our audience to understand. No, I totally agree. I mean, I, and, and I... Um uh, remind me before we wrap up. I want to. I want to uh, quiz you. I'm going to give you a fact or fiction here in a moment. But yeah, let's go ahead and, and talk about how how the how the FDA might respond. 
Well, now I'm getting a little nervous, John. I'm just framing uh, you, Mike. No, I'm, I'm just framing you. It's okay. It, it'll be a fun moment here in a few minutes. No, I appreciate that. So, okay. So, obviously, one of the first questions that folks are going to ask is, all right, we provide all of this information to FDA. What kind of a response do, do can we expect? So, simply put, what FDA says, if the response is uh, appropriately implemented, and again, I'm putting the word appropriately in air quotes because this is going to be contingent on the level of detail that you give them in terms of your response. But if your response is appropriately implemented, FDA will say one of three, three things. They will say, A, your response appears to be adequate. And again, remember, John, all of these words are yeah. passed by the FDA lawyers yeah. before it ever leaves the agency. So it appears to be adequate. That would be the best result. The next option they have is to say that it's partially adequate, or the third option would be inadequate. So once again, FDA's uh, responses, they appear to be adequate, they're partially adequate, or they're inadequate. The important thing to remember, John, is if FDA says it's partially adequate or inadequate, then FDA is also supposed to provide some sort of an explanation as to why and the recommendations that they might suggest in order to improve the situation. But once again, John, this is all a negotiation. You know, there's a, there's a back and forth here. All right. That's that's helpful. So now's the time for the, the quiz that I promised you a few minutes ago. Uh, all right. So, Mike, fact or fiction, how uh, I if I'm a, a recipient of 43 observations from FDA, uh, how I respond to those 483s could prevent me from getting a warning letter. Fact or fiction? Oh, it's definitely fact. I would say, John, if you respond to the 483 and you correct the action, you know, it's a, it's, it's sort of a, um, a spin on the adage, uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So if we can prevent a 483 observation from um, manifesting as a uh, full-fledged warning letter, um, I think the short answer is fact, unless I'm misunderstanding your question. John. No, that, that's uh, like I said, I, I was framing you a little bit, but that's uh, exactly uh, I would agree. Uh, and uh, the reason I bring that up is like, I think sometimes people, uh, folks, I think you could do yourself a huge favor. I mean, nobody wants a 43 observation. And sometimes whether you like it or not, it's inevitable. It's not the end of the world. It's not a kiss of death. But what you do next does matter. And so, you know, take these things serious enough and respond to them appropriately so that, you know, hopefully it doesn't get escalated. I mean, Mike talked about a moment ago, 43, the next level of escalation, if you will, is warning letter. Uh, there might be a few other layers uh, built in there, but then, you know, it could get to, a, if it's serious enough, it could get to a consent decree, jail time, fines, all these sorts of things, things that, of course, we want to avoid. And the way to avoid that is to be proactive as much as you can, uh, ounce of prevention and, and so on. So... Mike, I know we've covered a lot of ground on, on this topic and, you know, what a 43 is, what a warning letter and that sort of thing. Is there anything else that you think that, that's worthy of, of chatting with uh, or talking about today on, on this topic for the audience? So just one or two real quick things, and then we can wrap up with some final thoughts. 
Uh, in terms of responsiveness, because again, this is another question that I get a lot, and I'm sure you do as well. The company response, the regulation says that we have to respond to FDA in a timely manner. And that phrase, timely manner, is in the regulation. But in the guidance, FDA makes it clear that their interpretation of timely matter means that the company needs to respond within 15 business days. Um, and then from the FDA side, because the company will say, all right, we send this to FDA within 15 days. How far, you know, how, how long do we have to wait? In the guidance, FDA says they intend to provide this non-binding feedback within 45 calendar days. And again, just like all of the recent guidance, Johns, FDA parses their words carefully here. They don't say that they're going to respond to you within 40 days. They say that they intend to respond to you within 40 days. Yeah. But, you know, your results might may vary. <laughs> Most importantly, John, is um, I have a huge problem with regulatory absolutes like this, um, whether it's 15 days or 45 days or what have you. Because remember, one thing I mentioned earlier is uh, this process applies to both pre-market as well as post-market inspections. So if you have a device already on the market, then obviously time is of the essence and we need to respond sooner rather than later. But if this is a pre-market inspection and the device is not on the market yet, then quite frankly, who the heck cares how long it takes for the company to respond to the FDA because the product is not out there yet. Right. Yeah. So this is something that, that we should use our professional judgment for. Yeah. And one other quick thing to mention, John, is in terms of which 483s does this process apply to? Regrettably, and this is a criticism that I have of this particular guidance, it does not apply to all 483s. It only applies to the more serious 483s. If a 483 is not deemed to be serious, and the guidance lays out a few different categories, which I won't get into here, but if FDA thinks that this is not a serious 483, then the FDA is not obligated to respond to the request. In my opinion, I have a problem with that. You know, if we submit something to the agency, we have, as a matter of professional courtesy, an expectation of getting some sort of a response in return. So those are just a couple of uh, yeah. things. And oh, one other thing to mention real quick, John, is if the company chooses not to follow the FDA recommendation, that's fine. I don't follow you know, what FDA says frequently. But what I do do is go and tell them, here is why what you're suggesting doesn't make sense. And here's what we're going to do instead. So you can use this process and this guidance to do these things as well. So, I think that's that's good uh, tips. I just wanted to, to chime in a couple of things. So um, the 15 business days, folks, I've seen it way too many times in my career where it's day business day 14 post FDA inspection or post receipt of 43 observations. And there's a scramble to try to hurry up and put something together. That's not a good practice. You know, Mike is correct that sometimes it's hard to have the type of depth and detail in order to have as thorough response. But, you know, the do what you can uh, address as much as you can uh, to, at least to kind of plan your next steps and actions within that that 15 business day constraint John, if I can, if I can yeah, just interrupt ahead. one thing, I'm sorry, because I have some practical advice. I run into that situation as well. And listen, haste makes waste. You know, so I don't want a company to um, take their time in making a response. But on the other hand, I don't want to overly rush them either. If you're doing all that you can do to investigate a problem and 
simply put, you cannot come up with a complete response within that 15 days. I do not take a literal interpretation to any regulation, including this one. The regulation does not say that you have to send FDA a complete response. Exactly. It simply says you have to send them a response. Right. So in that scenario that you just described, John, what I would advise to the company is you simply say, this is the response that we've been able to come up with thus far. However, because of the complexity of the problem, this is a work in progress. And within another week or two weeks or what have you, we're going to follow up with some additional information. Great That's advice. What I would advise in a situation like that. Great advice. And then the other comment that I wanted to chime in on is the, quote, serious 43 observations. And I've heard this. I don't know that this is – I don't – think I've ever read where this is officially defined this way, but I've always heard that the order in which the 483s are listed on, on the um, inspectional observation report, that they're listed in order of, uh, I'll say, importance or seriousness or, or priority based on the view of the FDA uh, investigator. Is that fact or fiction? That's a very good question, John. And to be honest with you, I can't tell you off the top of my head. Um, I would have to go back and, and look at a number of them and see, but I, I never thought about that. Yeah, I don't know if that's fact or fiction, folks, but I, I, it's, it might be urban legend. <laughs> I've heard that a few times, that the, the number one uh, 483 observation, at least in the eyes of the FDA investigator, is the most serious of those. I don't know if that's true or not, but anyway. Um, well, what are, I can tell you, John, because yeah. I do spend some of my time doing you know mock inspections for companies. What I typically do when I do this, I was in a company just a few weeks ago. When I'm going through the inspection, I will list them chronologically. In other words, um, yeah. you know, I found this and then I found that and then I found the other thing. And then when I present them to the company, I separate them based on type, not necessarily based on severity, but oftentimes similar problems can be grouped in, you know, in, in, in similar. For sure. But, yeah. uh, maybe some inspectors put it uh, in terms of severity. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I was just curious if if you happen to know. All right, Mike, as we wrap up this conversation on non-binding feedback after certain FDA inspections, what are your final thoughts on this? So just to wrap this up, and again, thanks for the opportunity to John to talk about this because I think this is important for a lot of folks in our audience. Look, most importantly, and people have heard me before, this is going to be nothing new, always do what makes sense. And when I say that, always do make sense, what, what I mean is from a biology and engineering perspective, and then let the re regulation follow. So as long as we can support, as long as we can justify what we do from an engineering and a biology perspective, I'm not worried about the regulation. You know, I or somebody like me can figure out how to make the regulation work. I also want to remind everybody in our audience when it comes to uh, manufacturing for, uh, inspections, I don't know if you were a former Boy Scout, John. Um, I was actually an Eagle Scout back in the day. Uh, the Boy Scout motto, be prepared. In other words, be prepared not just to explain what you're doing, but also to defend why you're doing it. And in many cases, I will also explain why I'm not doing something else, whether this is in a manufacturing inspection or in a pre-submission meeting or anything else. That's a strategy that I take frequently. And, you know, and you and I, John, I know are both big fans of having mock audits. In other words, have somebody like us come into the company and, you know, put our sort of FDA hat on temporarily and really go in there and kick the tires 
And if you have somebody just come in and say, oh, you're doing a great job, you know, give yourself a pat on the back and have a parade. Yeah. Uh, with all due respect, they're not doing their job. No. You know, so this is... And they're not doing you know, the favors either. Exactly right, John. And I know you're a big fan of the design controls, John. We've talked about this many times, but this is the equivalent to, in the design controls, the concept of an independent reviewer. You know, so have somebody come in, come in and uh, and kick the tires and make sure that all of your systems are working the way you think they're working. At the end of the day, you can spin this as many ways as you want, but the manufacturer is ultimately responsible. Not just responsible in a regulatory slash FDA perspective because you might get a 483 or a warning letter or possibly even a consent decree, but you're also responsible from a product liability perspective. So in the end, will this new guidance and this new process improve the efficiency of of this? Well, clearly, I think it's going to spur more communication between companies and the agency on the manufacturing side. And I think that's a good thing. You know, as I've said many times, the solution to most problems is more communication, not less. Um, So perhaps this will be a solution to, to some of the problems, but will it really lead to a real non-sanitized communication that I'm not sure about. Who knows? Because usually when com- when FDA comes into a company, in spite of what FDA says, you know, we want to have good communication and so on, everybody is on their best behavior. Everybody, you know, everything has been very sanitized. <laughs> yep. it's just, let's just be honest, John. That's just the way that it is. Yeah. And, you know, but anyway, and now finally we come full circle back to the one of the first questions that you asked is, do we really need this guidance? Do we really need this process? Well, here's what I would say, John, and then we can wrap this up. For those folks like you and I who really know what the heck we're doing and know how to play this game, then I'll be crystal clear. We absolutely do not need this guidance. We do not need this process. We do not need, you know, pre-submission meetings because we've been doing these things for, you know, in my case, for almost 30 years. But regrettably, John, not everybody is in the same category that you and I are. And so, you know, those other folks, this is not a a criticism, but just simply an observation, they probably do need this. But at the end of the day, I'll give FDA credit. They are trying to foster communication in whatever sanitized ways, you know, as is, 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 is they can. And so, you know, I'm optimistic, you know, at the end of the day, I hope this guidance and similar guidances like it will ultimately lead to the world to a better place. Yeah, and I'm, I want to just chime in. So you uh, you heard Mike say manufacture a couple of times, and I know that term creates some ambiguity for some folks. And let me just clarify, if your name is on the product, you are the manufacturer. Just keep that in mind. So, you know, take that advice that he, that Mike offered, you know, this is ultimately your responsibility. So just keep that in mind. Even if you're like a software company and then you don't quote manufacture anything, uh, per definition, from a regulatory perspective, that's going to still make you a manufacturer of that software as a med device. So just keep that in mind. But I tend to agree. That's a good you point, know. John. And the way I, I like to describe it is, uh, without getting into a lot of legalities here, whoever's name is at the top of the label. That yep. is ultimately who is responsible, not just to the FDA, but that is ultimately who the product liability attorneys are going to come after if there's a problem later on. So whoever is at the end, of, sorry, whoever is at the top of the label is yep. the one that's ultimately responsible. Yep. All right. Well, I think that's a pretty good overview of this guidance document. And I, I kind of echo what Mike's saying. You know, if, if uh, you're experienced and, and you do a good job with this process as it stands, is there anything new in this guidance? Uh, maybe not, but I'm encouraged by this guidance because 
it um, it's you know it's it's I think it's trying to foster that collaboration uh, between agency and and industry, and I think that that's something that we've been seeing as a recurring theme in past few years from FDA. And as a medical device professional, I'm encouraged by that because I think for so long, at least in my career, and there's been this uh, very much this throw it over the wall kind of mentality. Med device does something, they throw it to over the wall to FDA, they cross their fingers, they wait, and so on and so forth. So programs like this, I think, are are good movement to, to see agency is is very uh, keen to try to be more collaborative with agency. And, and so from that perspective, I, I see this as a good movement from FDA. Mike, I want to thank you for taking time and, and uh, diving deep into this topic uh, on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Uh, folks, you've heard me say it before. I'll say it again. There's nobody better in the medical device industry when it comes to regulatory strategy. Uh, Mike is a great guy to have in your corner. So, you know, I encourage you to reach out to Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences. Uh, If you don't know how to get a hold of him, uh, just search for Mike Drews, D-R-U-E-S. You can find him everywhere on LinkedIn and a number of other medical device industry publications. And and if you can't figure out how to get a hold of him, send me a note and I'll gladly make that connection for you. I also want to remind you all that a lot of the things that we're talking about today and, and on other episodes of the Global Medical Device Podcast, of course, there is a quality management system implication for this. What are your docu- What is your documentation? Where are your records? How are you managing these things on an ongoing basis? Records are a big part of an FDA inspection. So having a good system where those documents, those records are organized, categorized, easy to retrieve, it's going to make your life a lot easier from, from an FDA inspection standpoint. Frankly, it's going to make your business a lot easier to run on the day-to-day basis too. And that's exactly what we've done with Greenlight Guru. Our QMS software platform is designed exclusively for the medical device industry by actual medical device professionals. So if you'd like to learn more about Greenlight Guru, I would encourage you to go to www.greenlight.guru. Read all about how the best, most innovative medical device companies all over the globe are bringing their products to market a little bit faster and focusing on true quality uh, while at the same time addressing compliance needs. So check that out. As always, this is your host, founder, VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.